going to start off again as a, a reminder of the same, same thing we've talked about for the past, uh, since we started this, just to remind us why we're here, because I told you all I would do this every time. So if y'all don't learn anything else from this past, I don't know, 10, 11 weeks plus that we'll be doing this, is that why we're doing the Psalms of Ascent, what they are. So they were, as they going up to worship, they kind of set the stage for the worship and they kind of reminded everyone why they were going and what they were going for. And they were the opening act to the primary worship service. And this is our opening act to the primary worship service. We can orient our hearts in the correct direction to kind of settle down during this time till we move over there. And these, remember, they're going through these 15. We've been through 11, 12 so far. No, 10 so far. We're doing 11 and 12 today. And throughout this journey, we have this ascent that we're doing throughout them. So it's good to remind, them, remind ourselves where we've been through each of them. And I'm going to go through a brief overview of each of the psalms that we've been through so far to rehearse exactly where we've come from and where we're going today. When we started the journey downtrodden, separated from the people of God, surrounded by those who want war. And you move on to remind ourselves that the help for the journey comes only through Yahweh, who will forever keep us and will forever protect us. Then in the third psalm, you rejoice at the arrival in Jerusalem and pray for Jerusalem's peace and unity. While there, we look upon the Lord with a a longing gaze and then beg for his mercy and relief upon us. We then move to celebrate God for his providence towards us and his guiding hand of protection. After that, Back extolling the glories of being physically and spiritually in Mount Zion and the blessed peace that exists there. And last week, we I'm sorry, not two weeks ago, we first talked about holy laughter and the overflowing joy that comes from considering the great things that the Lord has done for us. Then the next psalm moved into a brief movement that asked for a flooding of God's blessings, especially upon those who weep and who mourn. The overall message of the psalm that followed that was that all in life is vanity if the blessings of the Lord are not upon your efforts, whether that is building a house, whether it's vocational work, or whether it's raising a family. Remember, that was the psalm that was written by Solomon. Everything was vanity if it was not focused on the Lord. And then last week, we had two very contrasting psalms in terms of emotions, especially Psalm 128 was all about the blessed man. Remember, it kind of sounded like a toast almost. And it was the blessed man that that fears the Lord. And this blessed man enjoys the the fruit of his labor. This blessed man has a loving wife and he has invigorated children. And he seeks the prosperity of the worshiping community. So 128 was all about blessings. And then you move on to 129. And 129 is an imprecatory psalm. And that's all about curses. So you got blessings and then you have curses back to back. And in 129, we looked at why the imprecatory psalms are actually beneficial for Christians. It's not something that you should avoid. It's something that's beneficial for us. And then the study of this psalm kind of culminated in us remembering where blessings and curses come together in really the most explicit way, the cross. We reminded ourselves of that. That's where blessing and curses are really put together in the most profound and explicit way is at the cross. And moving on to just a preview of what we're going to see today, we're going to see in Psalm 130... We're going to see in a certain way, this kind of continues the train of thought of 129, but in a different context. And then we're going to end up with the calming verses of Psalm 131. So let's start these together. Let's read and study and then sing together. 
First of all, Psalm 130. You'll read it with me. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So here we have a lament, but it's a special kind of lament. It's a penitential lament where the psalmist recognizes that he cannot stand before a holy God in the condition of his own sinfulness. So in a a corporate context, this psalm would help the worshipers as they're singing to see themselves as a forgiven people, but they see themselves as a people whose only right to enter God's presence lies in his mercy. It's nothing in themselves. It's all in the mercy of God because he's the only one that can forgive their iniquities. So if they're singing this as a worshiping people that are going up to worship in Jerusalem, they're going to remind themselves that when they get there, or if they are there, the only reason that they're able to worship is because God forgives their iniquities. Because it cannot dwell in the presence of sinfulness. Once, Martin Luther was asked what he thought were the best psalms. This was that he held these table talks where he, his family would feed a ton of people and they'd get together and just talk about theological things, basically. Yeah, these were the students and pretty much anyone that wanted to come. And so he, had, he was asked what he thought was the best, were the best psalms. And his answer was, the best psalms are the Pauline psalms. It's a strange response. Paul obviously did not write any of the psalms. But he said, the Pauline psalms, the Psalms 32. Dirk's going to talk about that one today. So a bit preview. You know, Dirk in the, the primary worship service is going to preach on Psalm 32. So the Pauline psalms. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. This is what Luther's response was. And by Pauline, Luther meant that these psalms, a lot like, the, like a lot of the Pauline epistles, recognize the urgency of defiled man's position before a holy God, and that man, because of his sinfulness, cannot dwell in the presence of God. But the psalms are Pauline because they don't end in despair. They, like Paul, affirm that the Lord is righteous, and he alone can forgive sins. So look, look then how this psalm begins in verses 1 and 2. Read them again with me. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So this, the psalmist here is in the depths of misery over his sin. In 129, that psalm was a lament. It was an imprecatory psalm, but it was also a lament. They were in the depths of misery there because they were being oppressed by someone outside of themselves. In Psalm 130, the psalmist is in depths of misery because he is being oppressed by his own sinfulness. And he's crying out to the Lord for mercy. The tone is is very urgent here. Notice all the exclamation points. I don't know about in your translation, but in the ESV, there's three exclamation points in these two verses. He's crying out to the Lord for a desperate plea for mercy here because he, he knows his own sinfulness. It's a very desperate situation. And then verse 3 affirm something that should be terrifying to anyone who attempts to approach God without the blood of Christ. Verse 3 again. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? 
you recognize this if you recognize that God is holy and that you are sinful. If you approach him without the blood of Christ, who can stand? No one. No one can be able to stand. So in this way, this psalm actually connects back to the previous psalm in 129 verse 4. Look up there with me. 129 verse 4, it says, The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Then jump down to verse 3 of 130 again. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So since the Lord is pure righteousness, he's nothing but pure righteousness, he cuts off the wicked, he marks their iniquities, and they cannot stand before them. So you got the connection here. Previous psalm is to those outside of the worshiper. Psalm 130 is within the worshiper. He recognizes that no one can stand faced with his own iniquities before God because the Lord is pure righteousness. 129, once again, was directed to those who hate the Lord's redeemed. But 130 is a man who is acutely aware of his own iniquities. He recognizes that without God, he is in depths from which he cannot escape. But if you remember back about a year ago, in Jonah's psalm, in Jonah's prophecy, the the narrative about Jonah, chapter 2 of the book of Jonah is a psalm. In this Chapter 2, it begins with Jonah crying out from the depths of Sheol. That's what it says. Crying out from the depths of Sheol. And then the last, very last thing it says in the psalm, it says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 130 does the same thing because it does not leave us wallowing in the despair of our own sinfulness. If you cut off at verse 3, that's kind of a desperate situation. Right? Verses 1 and 2, we're crying out to God for mercy. Verse 3, we affirm that God is righteous, and if he marks iniquities, no one can stand. But then you have this blessed promise of verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. It's the same way that Jonah closes his psalm, his psalm, salvation is of the Lord here, but with you there is forgiveness. Get the same thing. And this is a promise. This is a great promise. So think, think about your sins. Whenever I was reading this, I thought, of, thought about my sins. It made me, you know, shameful for my sins. And, but you also, you think about God's righteousness. And then you think about, somehow God says, go in peace, your sins have been forgiven. This is what Jesus says to you. Go in peace, your sins have been forgiven. It's the same thing this psalm affirms here. But with you, there is forgiveness. This is what God promises to those who come to him in faith. And then this, the verse ends with that you may be feared. And this is why he may be feared. Your sins have been forgiven. And the fear in this sense is not some terrifying fear, obviously. This is a sense of, it's a grand sense of awe. It's a sense of loving reverence. It's a sense that evokes worship to God because he forgives sins. And that you may be feared. And so now we're back to the blessed man. The blessed man of Psalm 128 that we, lent, that we read last week. The blessed man, it starts out, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Connecting that over to Psalm 130, it says that you may be feared. The blessed man fears the Lord in Psalm 130 because his sins have been forgiven. So it it evokes this wonderful sense of worship here. And then later on, moving on from verse 4, we get that... The soul waits 
It says, my soul waits for the Lord. And a repeated refrain there, more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. So then comes the waiting. And in one sense, this is another affirmation that God is the only one who initiates salvation. The man cannot move on his own. He has to wait on God. So connecting it back to the previous verses, before you can receive forgiveness, you have to wait on the sovereign Lord to bestow it. Forgiveness is something that God grants. And this, this waiting here, the one who waits for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope, this is not, this is not anxious waiting. This is a waiting of confident anticipation here. So this is a watchman. You notice here, a watch, like more than watchman for the morning, a watchman is someone who stands post, usually in a military context, and he's going to sit there and he's going to wait until the morning when his shift is over, but this watchman is sure that the sun will rise. He knows that the sun is going to rise. He's not waiting with anxiety to see if the sun is going to rise. It's a confident anticipation that he can leave his post when the sun rises and go home to his wife or go home and go to, go to sleep. But he's confident in this. And it's the same thing that this man who's waiting on the Lord is. He's confident. He's as confident that the sun is going to rise, that the Lord is going to act, that the Lord is going to forgive his sins. So he has complete confidence in God's word here. And it's the same way. We have the same sense of waiting for Jesus to return. We wait in confident anticipation that Jesus is true to his word and that he's going to return to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new. In other sense, we are waiting for the sun, the S-O-N, not the S-U-N, the sun to rise from the clouds with trumpet sound. We wait as sure as we know that the sun is going to rise over the horizon. We wait for Jesus. And then that's when we can go to our ultimate rest from our watchman's post. So you connect it here. It's got eschatological, eschatological meanings here too. We're waiting on Jesus to come back when we can fully rest from our watchman's post. And then there's another psalm here, and we'll jump, jump over to Psalm, 120, psalm not, not Psalm 127, Psalm 27. This is another psalm that really just oozes this, this confidence here. We'll read the whole thing. So Psalm, the part that we were on in Psalm 130 was very confident, a confident anticipation here. Read Psalm 27 with me of David. Now, just just note the confidence here that David's writing with. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat at my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamped against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to acquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. And I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. 
I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 14, this is the one we've been waiting on. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The same message that we've got here in 130 verse 5. It's the way David ends this psalm here. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So overall, this psalm is confidence and then prayer and then confidence again. With this great emphasis and ending on verse 14 and waiting for the Lord and this confident anticipation that he is going to act. He is going to be true to his promises. You can trust him. So David's obviously preaching to himself here. You can read that in this psalm. He's really preaching, preaching to David here. In the last verse, there's this implied you and or y'all, as we would say. So it's got this evangelistic tone here. Wait on the Lord. The Lord is true to his promises. He's going to act. And then back in Psalm 130, the same thing happens. So if you turn back over there, the same thing happens. So after, after the assurance of forgiveness and then the confident waiting here, the psalmist goes on to tell the corporate body the good news that he's experienced. Verse 5 says, hope in the Lord, basically. This is what it says. Hope in the Lord. In him there is steadfast love. Sorry, verse 7. That was not verse 5. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For in him is steadfast love. Hebrew word hesed. It's kind of hard to exactly translate that into English. It's his covenant love. It's something that's really hard for us to express. But he has purchased our redemption here. With him is plentiful redemption. It's in verse 7. So we have confidence that the redemption is going to be full. The redemption is going to be complete. And he's going to redeem Israel or the church, those that come to him in faith. He's going to redeem Israel from all of her iniquities. So this psalm is really kind of like a mini gospel presentation here. You've got a presentation of the problem. You've got a presentation of the problem there. You've got man's sinfulness and how he cannot stand before God. It's verses 1 through 3. But then you get the solution in verse 4. God forgives the iniquities of those who repent. Then we wait in faith for him to return. So you've got the eschatological aspect. But until then, you can't help but tell others about the forgiveness that God gives. Because in his son, he has promised to forgive them. He forgives for Jesus' sake. And he has promised us his unfailing love and his full redemption. So you got this mini gospel presentation in Psalm 130 here. So I invite you to think about these wonderful truths as we sing this song together. Sing it to each other. Sing it to our God here. Remind yourself that you have been forgiven and that you can trust in God. Our hope is in the Lord because there's steadfast love with him. There's plentiful redemption. He forgives sins and he's worth waiting for. But you wait in confident anticipation. So remember that while we're singing it here. If you grab your your Psalter there, Psalm 130. Everybody got, got one? Got a copy? Good? Okay. All right, we're going to sing this to the tune of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Lord, from the depths of 
Psalm 131. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So this psalm is a psalm of confidence that models the ideal frame of a soul before God. This soul is a calmed and quieted soul. So verse 1 might be a bit perplexing here because simply for the fact that this psalm is written by David. So we don't know exactly when David composed this psalm. It could have been before he ascended to the throne or it could have been after. But we know that at least very, very likely that David had probably been anointed king at this point, if he wasn't already king. And then in verse, verse 1, it says David, David proclaims here basically that he is not proud. You know, his, his heart's not lifted up. His eyes are not raised too high. Those are metaphors to say that he's, he's not proud, basically. So this is good, obviously. It's good to not be proud. David's the, the king, and he's not proud. But then he essentially says on the next thing, and when he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, he's essentially saying that he is going to refrain from pondering on things that are difficult to understand. Now, some, some might take this to mean that we don't need to spend our time thinking about deep theological things, but the rest of the Bible would attest that this is definitely not the case. So what is David saying here? So then really what this psalm is about, it's about first about humility and then about what the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs calls the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And it's about humility and contentment. So first of all, the godly person's heart is not lifted up, nor are his eyes raised too high. In other words, he has no displays of arrogance or pride, obviously. He does not occupy himself with things too great and too marvelous for him. So what does this statement mean? This really means that things that are beyond human powers to comprehend. And it might take a little bit of wisdom to discern where exactly that line is. Because we are to, to think about deep theological things. David's definitely not saying that things right, that right now. But it's beyond, the things that are beyond human powers to comprehend. The Christian man is humble, approaches God exact, and approaches God in exactly the way he has revealed himself, and does not make speculations about things that are not in God's word. There's no extra biblical revelation or anything like that. Those would be things that are too marvelous for us, things too high. But at the same time, this man recognizes who he is before God. And remember, this is David talking. This is the prototypical king of Israel. He's the one who all the other kings are supposed to aspire to be like. But even David knows his place here. His eyes are not too high. His, his, his heart is not lifted up. So this reminds me of when Job finally meets God at the end of Job. If you turn over there with me. Turn over there with me. Job, first in Job 40. Job meets God face to face for the first time here. In verses 3 through 5, this is what it says. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. 
I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So Job's first reaction when he is encountered by God is he's going to cover his mouth and he's going to let God do all the talking. Okay, So his heart is not proud, his eyes are not lifted up. Job is going to let God do all the talking. So God then talks in the rest of chapter 40 and all throughout chapter 41. And then in 42, Job gets a chance to speak again. And this is what Job says. So turn over to Job 42 and 1 through 6. This is Job's last response to God. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So a great display of humility that Job puts on here, right? We'll look back again at verse 3. See it again. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me that I did not know. This is the same exact phrasing that you see in 131. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So Job confesses the same thing here that David is trying to avoid. He is trying to avoid saying things that are too marvelous or too wonderful for me. I'm just going to be quiet. It's a display of humility here. Job's saying the exact same thing that David said. So it's not that these men don't think about the deep truths of God. I mean, Job would raise up each morning and sacrifice animals just in case his children were going to go sin that day. So Job thought about God a lot, but he didn't think about things that God had not revealed to things that were too marvelous and too wonderful for him. It's that at some point, these men know that God cannot be fully comprehended. If you think that God can be fully comprehended, you're wrong. Okay? He is comprehensible in the way that he has revealed to us in his word, but he cannot be fully comprehended. I forget who said it, but the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. It's impossible. And these men know this. And that's why David, in verse 2, says that he is he's able to calm his and quiet his soul. And he gives the illustration here of a weaned child. The weaned child has gained a small level of independence from the former complete dependence upon his mother's milk. Yes, he's still dependent upon his mother, but he's dependent upon her in a different way. The weaned child has learned a measure of maturity. The psalm's about Christian maturity and humility and contentment. It's interesting, though, that both Paul and 1 Corinthians and the author of Hebrews use the same milk solid food metaphor to chide the letter's recipients about their lack of spiritual maturity. You know, that was really what they're telling them. You know, it wasn't necessarily that they were just concerned with the elementary things and hadn't moved on to deeper things. It was really that they weren't mature. They were having to still be fed by the milk and not solid food. That's the same thing David's saying here too. He's, he's been weaned off the milk and he's moved on to the maturity of living before God in a calm and quiet way. So these, these three authors, David and Paul and the author of Hebrews, are trying to communicate the exact same method, message to the reader or the singer in this case. Is it was just grow up. You know, grow up. Don't be proud. Walk in humility. Yeah, you can ponder the deep things of God, but don't cross over into speculation. And don't try to fully comprehend a God who is incomprehensible in his fullness. Okay? 
Don't strive for riches and glory that will fade, or the treasures of this world, as Jesus says, but be content with God's presence and the lot in life that he has given you. Don't fret and worry about things that you cannot change or are out of your control. You see this, the ultimate example of this, in Jesus' willingness to march to Calvary in complete devotion to accomplish the will of the Father. Jesus was content in this. He knew that the, that was the will of the Father. This is the job that the Father had given him, and he was content and humble in that, first in humbling himself to become a, a man anyway and take a, assume a human nature. But in also his march to Calvary, Jesus shows extreme humility and contentment in what the Father had given him to do. So those singing this, whenever they're ascending to the mount to worship, and they're singing it to, this, to each other, they're going to remind themselves about true contentment and their true satisfaction in God. And then they ring out with this final chorus here that they sing together, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That's how the refrain ends in this psalm. It's not a refrain in the sense that you repeat it, but it's the culmination of this. And the, the contentment and the lack of pride and the humility and the spiritual maturity. In the end, this is to remind us, O Israel, hope in the Lord. That's where the hope lies. That's where maturity is pointed to. We're humble and not proudful because we hope in the Lord. And we're going to hope in Him from this time forth and forevermore. So each member of the corporate body here looks at each other and he sings the reminder of where the eternal hope really lies. It lies in the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God. So that's the source of the contentment. The true humility expresses itself in confident reliance on the Lord. The same thing in the previous psalm, the confident reliance upon the Lord. It releases a person from strife of arrogance and personal ambition. It quiets the heart with contentment to live near to God. So brothers and sisters, as we sing this now, set your hearts and your eyes low as we remind each other of where our hope lies. Our hope lies in the Lord. We're going to sing this one together now. Psalm 131. I'm going to sing this one to Amazing Grace.
John, will you pray for us, please?